G'day and welcome to the Sea Creatures Podcast, a show all about the amazing animals that live beneath the waves. Each episode we chat about a specific sea creature with a guest who has spent time and interacted with this ocean animal. Our guests range from marine biologists to underwater photographers, citizen scientists, scuba divers, and anyone with an intense passion for marine life. My name's Matt Testoni, and I'm all of the above. And joining me for this episode of the Sea Creatures Podcast is Habitat Restoration Coordinator, Quinn Whitesell-McCarran, and we're going to be talking all about the amazing world of the horseshoe crab. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. No worries. So before we talk about this amazing animal, which I was so keen to learn about, tell us how you kind of got involved in horseshoe crab research and how you became to like them so much. So, you know, I've always had a passion for the coastal environment and I got my undergraduate degree in marine science. I never thought I'd be working with horseshoe crabs, but I started working with a nonprofit called the American Littoral Society. And for those of you that don't know, littoral is just a fancy word for shoreline or coast. And we are a nonprofit that focuses on conservation, education, and advocacy for the coast. And my work with horseshoe crabs began uh, began shortly after uh, Hurricane Sandy in 2012. So I'm located um, in New Jersey in the United States. And this hurricane back in October of 2012 came through and decimated a lot of our beach and coastal habitats. And one of those habitats was the Delaware Bay, which is a critical place for horseshoe crabs and shorebirds. And so doing habitat restoration really got me focused more into horseshoe crabs. Awesome. Cool. And for the record, this is embarrassing, but I didn't actually know what literal meant. So Many people don't. You got me as well yeah. there. I actually had no idea really what a horseshoe crab was before doing a bit of research for this show. So it's super exciting. So I reckon there might be a few others listening that also have no idea, especially if we're not from an area where you find them naturally. So tell us exactly what a horseshoe crab is and kind of describe them. I describe them as a, looking like a bit like a vacuum cleaner, but I'm sure you have a better way of saying it. <laughs> so horseshoe crabs, although we use the word crab, they're actually not crabs at all. They're more closely related to spiders and scorpions, actually. And they're most closely related to trilobites that existed like 544 million years ago. So there are four species of horseshoe crabs in the world. Uh, the one that I work with is the American horseshoe crab, uh, Limulus polyphemus. There are three other species that can be found in Asia, and they all look pretty similar. There is a, some slight differences, but um, my expertise is more on the um, Limulus, Limulus polyphemus horseshoe crab. But yeah, I mean, they're kind of scary looking, um, especially if you haven't really seen one before. A lot of people refer to them as like face huggers from Alien. That's like a, um, a common reference that we get. But yeah, I mean, they, they have this hard exterior and there's like three sections to the crab. And then underneath they have a bunch of legs. And so they kind of look like a crab, but yeah, they're not a crab at all. Yeah. And so, yeah, they've got that hard outer shell. And when you look at them from the top, they do just look like almost like a robot in a way like they've got a round circular kind of like that vacuumy head and then a like a long tail yeah it's quite an unusual creature isn't it 
It really is. As we talk about them, I have to ask too. I saw that they have some weird visual properties and eye kind of eyesight kind of things. Can you tell us a little bit more about their eyesight and their visuals? Absolutely. Yeah. So horseshoe crabs have 10 eyes, which always seems to amaze people. And two of the eyes you can see, you know, pretty clearly. And those are the compound eyes. And they use those eyes to see light and images, very similar to the way that we see light in images. In fact, scientists have actually learned uh, a bit about human eyes by studying horseshoe crab compound eyes. The other eyes are more primitive and they're more like photoreceptors than true eyes. And one cool thing about horseshoe crab eyes is that they can see UV light. And so also describe for us like how big a horseshoe crab is and then where, where you would find them typically. So, you know, horseshoe crabs range in size, you know, when they're eggs and they're getting ready to hatch. I mean, they sit like on the tip of your finger. They're really tiny. And, you know, the adult horseshoe crabs, uh, they also kind of range in size. The females are larger than the males. And they also kind of range in size. But the biggest horseshoe crab I think I ever found um, you know, I was able to like hold it across my chest, kind of a uh, range in size a bit. Yeah. So that's a pretty big marine animal, like to just find crawling around, especially on the beach, which is where you often see them, but they live on the beach sometimes, but talk us through like what their habitat is and how it changes. Depending on the stage of their life, horseshoe crabs require different habitats. So as adults, when horseshoe crabs are fully grown and sexually mature, that's when they come up onto the beaches to spawn and lay eggs. And so they prefer, you know, sandy beaches and bays and coves that have like a medium grain sand. Uh, they want that sand to be porous and well oxygenated so that way there's proper egg development. And we often find them in these um, bays and coves because it's a little bit more protected. There's not as much wave energy. But when the eggs hatch, the crabs will spend the first like two years of their life in the shallow waters of bays and in the intertidal flats and intertidal areas. And then as they age, they tend to move out a little bit further into deeper water. So, you know, and then they when they become you know, full adults, they'll start migrating out to the con continental shelf. When they come up to spawn, for us here in New Jersey, that's about May and June. And what triggers horseshoe crabs to come up and spawn is actually the water temperature. Yeah, so they migrate to the, like, the continental shelf, and then they come back when, like, the sea temperature rises. And I'm keen to talk about that a bit later, but I want to know how far is the continental shelf from where they typically are? Like, how far are these crabs going? Yeah. So, I mean, it all kind of depends on like where along the Atlantic coast you are for how far they travel. But from New Jersey, the continental shelf is about uh, 150 kilometers off of the coast of New Jersey. And then it extends down to about 160 meters. What's really cool about horseshoe crab movement from the beaches out to the continental shelf is they walk most of that journey. They don't re they swim sometimes, but they're not the greatest swimmers. So most of the time, they're just walking back out to the continental shelf. And I have to ask, so I often like read different facts and I kind of investigate if they're true or not. But I read that horseshoe crabs swim upside down. Is, is that true or is that just a funny internet fact? No, that is true. So they actually use their book gills. It's also how they breathe but they flutter those gills underwater and it helps propel themselves forward. But 
They really don't swim quite as often. But yeah, when they do, they do swim upside down. And then they use their tail to right themselves if they land upside down because they got that cone kind of body. Is that right? Yeah, they do. So, you know, often people think that the tail is used to like sting you and that's not true at all. It's not a defense mechanism. They use their tail to right themselves. So when there's really rough water on the beaches, horseshoe crabs will stick their tail down into the sand to right themselves back over. And it's really important that they do that because one of the you know natural mortalities of horseshoe crabs is when they are flipped upside down, their gills, which have to stay wet, they'll start to dry out in the sun. And uh, sometimes gulls and other birds will start to peck at the, the gills as well. So yeah, it's really important that they have a fully intact tail to right themselves back over. Yeah, such a, a cool adaption for a tail, I reckon. I'm talking a lot about movement, but that's also because a lot of your research, you've actually been tagging these crabs. Talk us through how you tag a horseshoe crab and then what you do with the data and how it's important. Sure. So the Literal Society has been tagging horseshoe crabs since 2014. And this is part of a larger program with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So they have a cooperative tagging program that we're a part of. So we invite volunteers to come out on the beaches with us and we start the night, you know, so part of it is research for us, but a big part of it is outreach. You know, we want to connect as many people as possible to horseshoe crabs, to the work that the Literal Society is doing, to the significance of horseshoe crabs, and just having them, you know, get that field experience and, and data collection experience that, you know, we're getting. So, you know, we start the night off with that talk and then we'll teach volunteers how to tag. And the way that you tag horseshoe crabs is, you know, we have a um, handheld drill. It's called a pin vise. And we cut a small hole into the back left fin of the horseshoe crab. That's the, the term for this back left corner of the crab on the front part, the prosoma. And once you cut a small hole into that, each horseshoe crab will get a small plastic disc tag and um, they each have their own unique number and there's like a screw like back to them and so you'll just kind of like pop the tag in and then it, it stays on and we record data about their sex so we want to know you know if they're male or female if there's any injuries maybe there's some cool stuff growing on them like barnacles or slipper shells and we'll note that and then also the date and the beach and so all of this data is collected and it helps us have a better understanding of our restoration efforts and you know, kind of uh, beach selection for horseshoe crabs. As we move forward with our restoration work, we want to make sure that we're focusing on beaches that are going to be utilized by horseshoe crabs. And we want to gauge the success of that through our tagging data. But that data also helps to inform management decisions about horseshoe crabs, uh, some information about their population, mortality, and movement throughout the bay, not only during the spawning season, but also between seasons. We've talked about like their migration and up onto the beach, but I heard that we don't really know how they choose their sand or like, tell us a little bit about the eggs and the breeding on the beach and how that all works. That's pretty unusual for a sea creature to like a, a non-mammalian sea creature or non-turtle sea creature to breed on the beach, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So yeah, you know, horseshoe crabs, they come up onto the beaches during the high tides to spawn and lay eggs. And um, in New Jersey, we have two high tides a day. We have one during the day, one in the evening. 
And the peak of horseshoe crab spawning can be found around the new and the full moons during the evening high tides. And that's because of the water level that comes up on the beach. So during those tides around the moon, we have higher water up on the beach. And, you know, one of the site selection criteria for horseshoe crabs is the sand needs to be pretty porous and, and well oxygenated. So those eggs have to get kind of enough water so that they don't dry out, but not too much water because they don't want the eggs to become inundated with water either. As far as beach selection, there's still a little bit of a, you know, kind of like a mystery about exactly what beaches they select, but they tend to like these shallow sloped beaches and bays that are you know, it's calmer water there. It's a little bit protected from, from wave energy. It's easier for them to come up on these shallow sloped beaches. But, you know, one of the cool things about horseshoe crabs, uh, you know, especially Limulus polyphemus, is they have this estuary fidelity. So, you know, some beach laying animals have beach fidelity, like sea turtles, right? So they go back to the same beach every year. Horseshoe crabs have estuary fidelity. So, all of the horseshoe crabs that spawn and lay eggs in Delaware Bay tend to return back to Delaware Bay every year to spawn and lay eggs again. And we've been able to see that through our tagging data as well. Wow, that's amazing. I love that they move like 150 kilometers out to sea to the shelf and then they're like, oh, I'm going to go back to the exact river. I, I just think animals just know so much more about migration and, and uh, directions than humans ever will. I think it's, it's pretty cool. Absolutely, yeah. So what do horseshoe crabs eat? Talk us through, like, when they're not coming up onto the beach and laying their eggs, what are they eating? And what's, like, the day of a horseshoe crab like? So the day of the horseshoe crab, you know, it'll kind of depend on the time of year. So during the spawning season, the horseshoe crabs... So the males, you know, when it's about high tide and they're getting ready to spawn, they'll just kind of hang out in the intertidal area until the females approach the beach. And as the female approaches the beach, she'll send out pheromones that she's in the area ready to spawn and lay eggs. And so that's when the male attaches to her. So really the males are just kind of like waiting around until the females are ready to lay eggs. And so when they're not up on the beach spawning and laying eggs, if it's still during spawning season, they hang just offshore. They really don't go too far. And they spend that time just kind of resting. They'll eat like small bivalves, worms. You know, they live on the bottom of the bay and sea floor. So they just eat things that you find on the bottom of the bay and sea floor. And yeah, and then they just wait until the next high tide. And when they're not spawning, they're either making their trek back out to the continental shelf or just hanging out there until it's time for them to come back. They don't live a very exciting life. <laughs> oh, sorry. I just have to ask, do they burrow? When they're laying their eggs and they come onto the beach, are they digging a burrow? Are they just putting them out there? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so the female, she will bury herself down in the sand quite a bit. The eggs, you know, she'll try and bury them. It's like between 5 and 20 centimeters below the sand. So the males, you know, they clasp onto the back of her. And then there's a few that just surround her for all kind of external fertilization. But yeah, she's buried a little bit into the sand. And then those eggs, in order for them to hatch, they have to stay buried. And so it takes about two weeks for them to become fully developed before they hatch. But when we have like rough waters, um, especially when we have coastal storms, it tends to churn up that sand a bit and unearths some of those eggs. And so with the changing climate and so forth, is that kind of a concern that changing weather and as we talked about earlier, changing temperature will bring about issues for these, these amazing animals? 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about horseshoe crabs without also talking about shorebirds, especially the, the red knot. So, you know, we have this incredible migratory shorebird, the, the red knot, that flies from as far as the tip of South America up to the Delaware Bay. And it spends like three weeks eating horseshoe crab eggs. And so there's this really great relationship between these two species where the red knots depend on horseshoe crab eggs. They're really fatty. It's, an, it's a quick way for them to get as much energy as possible to then sustain their journey up to the Canadian Arctic where they will breed. And so what we have been finding over the last several years is that this three-week window has become like really narrow recently. And I think a lot of that is due to climate change. So, you know, horseshoe crabs are temperature dependent. You know, they rely on the, the change in the temperature for them to come up to spawn and lay eggs. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we had a coastal storm that hit in the beginning of May, just as the horseshoe crabs were getting ready to spawn. And so when we have storms like that, they tend to hang offshore a bit and they won't come up. And then the red knots showed up and there were no horseshoe crabs. And the birds don't know if, you know, they're still waiting on the horseshoe crabs or if they missed them. So the birds left. And a lot of them didn't make it up to the Canadian Arctic to breed. And we saw those numbers kind of plummet after that season. And, you know, when we start to have more mild winters, we're starting to see some of the spawning happening more in early April. And this like three week window that the birds have is just going to become more narrow. And the birds aren't the only ones that rely on these eggs either. There's a lot of fin fish and other bird species too that, you know, feed on horseshoe crab eggs. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting one because I find with a lot of marine life, it's not just one issue that's causing like a big decline or climate change is one symptom, you know, like microplastics and um, overfishing. And I know those issues can affect the crabs, but it feels like climate change is is the main one that's affecting these birds. Like, it's, it's not like we can do something else to help them. It's just purely climate change, isn't it? Well, so, I mean, climate change is, you know, that's definitely something that affects the birds. But, you know, as far as the horseshoe crab population, there are other measures that can be taken to protect them. You know, horseshoe crabs are harvested for bait, and they're used as bait in the whelk and eel industry. They're also harvested for their blood. So one cool thing about horseshoe crabs is they have this component in their blood that clots or coagulates anytime it comes in contact with bacteria. And so the, the lysate that's developed from horseshoe crab blood is used in the pharmaceutical and biomedical industries. And that's used to test, you know, vaccines, injectable drugs, medical devices, and that really puts a burden on the horseshoe crab population as well. And, you know, that's not just the Atlantic horseshoe crab either. There's, you know, a couple other species that are in Asia that are also bled for medical purposes, although it's a different test that's used, but they're also, you know, harvested for bait. Uh, loss of habitat is also a really big, you know, threat for horseshoe crabs. The more that we develop our shoreline and coast, the less habitat they have to spawn and lay eggs. Yeah, because how far up the beach are they coming? I mean, not too far up, you know, just as just as far up as the high tide goes. But, you know, as we develop our shorelines and place bulkheads and jetties, you know, that cuts off access for critical horseshoe crab spawning habitat. Yeah. Well, to bring it back up to a high note, because I hate 
like getting towards the end of the show and being like a bit doom and gloom, although it is serious. I want to just ask, have you had any cool encounters with horseshoe crabs? Or like, is there a moment where you're like, wow, that that's a that's a really weird behavior or like, you know what I mean? Like a special horseshoe crab experience. So, so I've been working with horseshoe crabs for the last nine years and I've tagged over 30,000 crabs with the help of volunteers at this point. But I think the coolest horseshoe crab experience I've ever had was um, a few years back, we had to cancel a volunteer night because of a really severe thunderstorm that was coming through. But it was like the peak of horseshoe crab spawning for us in New Jersey. And so my coworker and I, you know, made the decision that maybe wasn't the wisest to like go out to the beach and, and see the horseshoe crabs. And, you know, there was a lot of coastal flooding. So we had to park like way up the road and we were walking out in like knee deep water And we got to the beach and it was the most horseshoe crabs I've ever seen in my life. And it was the coolest thing. You know, there were just like hundreds of thousands of horseshoe crabs. And, you know, we have uh, we've had a severe decline in horseshoe crab population in New Jersey and along the Atlantic coast in the last few decades. But, you know, what I saw out on the beach that night is like what I picture when people talk about like mountains of horseshoe crabs on beaches back in the the late 80s. That's what this that's what it felt like. It was just so cool to see that. Wow, that's it's crazy. And it's crazy for people who don't live near these animals because they're they're not related to anything else. Are they really like they're pretty unique? They're really, yeah, they're really unique. Yeah, they're maybe closely related to spiders and scorpions, but it's, yeah, it's it's a pretty far stretch for that. They're kind of their own thing. Now, do you have any, I mean, we've spoken about so many kind of cool facts, but do you have any additional ones on top of like how crazy their blood is and how they lay eggs on the beach and all that kind of stuff? Is there any other cool facts? I have lots of cool facts about horseshoe crabs. Um, so, you know, I talked a little bit about horseshoe crab blood and the really cool component that like makes it clot. But something else that's really cool is they have this like beautiful, like sky blue blood and um, their blood is blue because it's copper based, unlike our blood, which is iron based. So that's always really cool to, to tell people that come out with us, you know, that they have blue blood. You know, one of I, I think, you know, another really cool thing about horseshoe crabs is that when the female comes up to lay eggs for the season, she will have pretty much all of the eggs that she's going to lay that season inside of her. And she keeps them all in her persoma, which is the front portion of the horseshoe crab. And so she'll lay up to like 90,000 within one season and she'll have all of them inside of her ready to go. And I just find that fascinating. And then she'll lay about 4,000 at a time. And so one of the things that, you know, we're also trying to collect with our data is kind of when the females come up to to spawn and lay eggs. So she lays about 4,000 at a time and she comes up about 20 times in the season. But we want to know a little bit more about when she comes up, you know, is, is she only coming up during the one of the high tides a day or is she coming up for a few high tides at a time and then she goes to rest and so that's something else that we're going to try and collect with our tagging data as well cool yeah so i guess is like is she doing that because she can have different partners so she has a better chance of her egg surviving or is it just to like you know try and avoid the shorebirds or why do you why do you think she doesn't lay them all in one go 
Um, I imagine it's just exhausting. Um, <laughs> you know, she, I don't know, maybe she has to, you know, take a couple of days to recuperate and get some energy back before she goes back to, you know, spawn and lay eggs a few days later. But yeah, you know, we want to get a little bit more information about the timing of, of yeah, when the females come up during the, the season to lay her eggs. Apart from people, are there any predators of them when they come up to lay their eggs on the beach? So not so much. They have outlived most of their predators. When they're juveniles, there are some fish and birds and crab species that tend to eat them. And as adult horseshoe crabs, sometimes uh, sea turtles or sharks will eat them if there's nothing else around. But they've outlived pretty much all of their predators. Cool. So if people want to see horseshoe crabs or they want to help out horseshoe crabs in any way... What's the best way for them to do it? And where should they go and what should they do? So if you would like to see horseshoe crabs, especially the Atlantic horseshoe crab, you know, the epicenter of horseshoe crab spawning in the world is Delaware Bay. So, you know, that's a great place to come see them. They're up uh, during high tides in May and June. And the peak of that is usually around the new and the full moon, the evening high tide. And if you want to help horseshoe crabs, you know, often we see horseshoe crabs up on their back on the beach. The best way to help them is just flip them back over. And when you do that, we just ask that you flip them over by their side. A lot of people tend to pick up horseshoe crabs by their tail, but their tail is actually very fragile. And the muscle that holds their tail is very fragile. And so if any part of that tail breaks, they're not going to be able to right themselves on their own. So the easiest way to help a horseshoe crab is just flip them back over. Sorry, I just, I love that, like, that's something that we should be encouraging people. If you find an upside down horseshoe crab, just flip it over by its shell, not by its tail, and off it goes. It's, it's just cool. But anyway, sorry, continue. Oh, yeah, no. Um, so, you know, we run a pretty extensive volunteer program for horseshoe crab tagging. And, uh, you know, we're always welcoming new volunteers. So, you know, feel free to check us out and, and come tag horseshoe crabs with us. Awesome. Cool. Well, that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. But if anyone wants to learn more about horseshoe crabs or the work you do, where should they go? So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about the Literal Society and and our work, the best way you can find us is at Literal Society on all of our social media channels. And that's L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L Society. Check out our website, literalsociety.org. Sign up for our newsletters. Become a member. You know, we encourage people to become members of the Literal Society and, you know, get more involved in our work, help us advocate for coastal issues, help us advocate for horseshoe crabs. Awesome. Well, thanks heaps for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Sea Creatures Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by Matt Testoni. You can see my photography on Instagram at Matt underscore Testoni underscore photography. Or visit my website, www.mtunderwatermedia.com. If you've liked the show, jump onto our Patreon account, which is www.patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can help with a little monthly donation, which helps with the running costs of the show. Music by the awesome Dan Musil, and production assistance by George McGrath. If you've liked the show, please give us a rating wherever you're listening to. If it's Spotify, if it's Apple, anywhere, every extra rating helps. Coming up next time on the Sea Creatures Podcast, we're going to be talking all about the Sydney octopus with Lawrence Scheel. This has been the Secretures Podcast. Over and out.